Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the media show coming to you from 2SCR on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Marilyn Hetrilis. Tonight, young journalists heading to the Middle East to become war correspondents. Are they heroes or are they insane? We speak to one young journalist who's headed to places where bombings, kidnappings and terror attacks are rife. Also, the media coverage of two terror attacks in one week, in two very different places. And the Daily Telegraph claims that UNSW is rewriting history by saying Australia was invaded rather than settled. Joining me in the studio is Josh Butler, acting politics editor at Huffington Post Australia. Hey, also in the studio, we have Benedict Brooke, journalist for news.com.au. Good evening. And joining us on the line from Melbourne is Nazia Barfin, media lecturer at Monash University. Good evening. If you'd like to get in touch with us via Twitter, you can find us at 4th Estate AU, all letters, no numbers. 22-year-old Australian journalism student Henry Squire has decided to head to the Middle East to report on the Syrian crisis in the aim of one day reaching his dream job as a war correspondent. His own father believes that for journalists to travel to some parts of the Middle East is an absolute death wish. This isn't the first time Henry has travelled to the Middle East. He's already suffered through months of nightmares after being shot at and arrested near the Turkish-Syrian border while trying to report on the bloody conflict in 2014. He says he's aware of the dangers but has been adamant about returning. He's now in Oman in the Arabian Peninsula learning Arabic before venturing elsewhere. Fourth Estate's executive producer, Jack Fisher, spoke to Henry over the phone from Oman. And just to let you know, it's a pretty bad phone line which gives you a sense of what Henry's family must be going through. Henry, you've been near the Turkey-Syria border before and it's a pretty hairy situation. You're 22 years old, your language skills are limited. Why should you be the one to go there and report? Um, well, yeah, the highest priority of my, um, me spending time over here in the Middle East is um, uh, honing my language skills and um, immersing myself in the culture, you know, getting to know the people, making contacts here, just building a repertoire with, um, with the culture here. So... Yeah. While it is dangerous, I'm going to be playing it as safe as I possibly can. Um, it's a pretty hairy place, but um, I'm making good contacts here, and I think I might be able to pull this off. Well, what about your family? How have you managed their concerns? I'm sure they must be pretty terrified for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I talked to my father yesterday, and he's, yeah, well, they're all very understandably stressed, and so I decided to mitigate whatever risk I. Um, do take on uh, to take into account my family and friends um, uh, as the highest priority. Okay, obviously it's tough for student journalists to prove themselves. Is that what this exercise is all about? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a part of me that um, was doing this. So you know, when I do get out my degree, um, I can sort of look, point at my resume and say I've been here, here, here. Um, you know, I've got contacts here, I've had this experience with this sort of journalism. Uh, it's a pretty uh, tall order for a student journalist, though. 
pretty tall order for a student journalist indeed. That was 22-year-old Henry Squire speaking to Jack Fisher earlier. Nazia, as a journalism lecturer, what would you have said if one of your students came to you with this proposal? Um, my reaction would involve a lot of choice four-letter words, so I don't think you want to actually play it or you don't want me to describe what, what my reaction uh, would have been. Certainly when I looked at this uh, story earlier in the week, uh, what, what came to mind was it is an incredi- incredibly tough uh, industry. I mean, journalism has always been uh, quite a competitive industry. Uh, it hasn't gotten any easier with the advent of, of new technology, with the advent of a 24-hour news cycle, and people are doing everything that they can to stand out from other journalism graduates. But there is a definition, I mean, there is a, there is a delineation, I guess, between initiative and stupidity. Um, and I, one of my students actually got um, arrested and thrown in jail for one night uh, on the border um, on a border town in in a border town in Egypt, and that was scary enough. Um, and when you see uh, people who look, I guess the difference is with with my student, she wasn't walking into an environment which she felt or or which she had heard was dangerous. She was going to a place where, for all intents and purposes, everyone had told her it was safe. And so, thankfully, nothing serious happened to her, and she got a fantastic story. Um, but I guess it just shows the the danger of doing something like this when. I was at the ABC. Uh, Peter Lloyd was the South Asia correspondent. Uh, so he reported from countless bombings in Pakistan. Uh, he'd worked for Sky and the BBC. And, you know, if someone as experienced as him suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. So there are a whole host of questions uh, I would be asking of anyone who was planning a trip like this 22-year-old student. What uh, sort of assessment have you put in place to put to assess the risks relative to... Um, the opportunities and the benefits, I guess. Uh, would you be putting yourself at risk? Even worse, would you be putting other people at risk, particularly civilians in, in a war-torn um, conflict zone? Josh, do you think Henry should be applauded for his decision to report from the Middle East? Maybe not applauded, but I think I, I can see where he's coming from. I, I think in theory, you know, obviously a lot of people talk about, you know, the media doesn't, doesn't cover these sort of events properly. They're not paying enough attention to, you know, these, these plights of people in these far off lands. And obviously this young guy's felt strongly enough to, you know, go over there and make a pretty arduous journey, I can imagine, to, to, to Syria and uh, all, all the dangers and, and just sort of difficulties associated with that. But and I, I can sort of see where he's coming from and saying, you know, I, I feel so strongly about this that I want to go and put my life in risk and all that sort of stuff. But in practice, I think it's totally crazy, to be honest. Um, and I think the fact that so many journalists, really experienced war zone and conflict zone guys have come out this week and said, you know, this is not on. Like a guy like Hamish McDonald I saw was saying that this is, you know, not the sort of thing a, a young journalist should be doing or any journalist should be doing with going over with, you know, not a lot of contact and a lot of, you know, structure or, or kind of infrastructure behind him to help him get, get there and, and do the job that he wants to do. Uh, I think that sort of shows how, how dangerous this sort of thing is. Like I said, I think in theory, you know, every journalist wants to go over and write the big story and, and you know, shed light on things they think should have light shed on them. But in practice, I think this is wild, to be honest. And how about for you, Benedict, how effective and credible is a journalist's storytelling if they have limited experience and can't speak the language? Well, not incredibly credible. Um, in that clip, he was uh, talking about how, how he was uh, playing it safe. I mean, I'd say this is the opposite of playing it safe. 
Um, he says he's making contacts over there, and you just got to wonder, you know, what what contacts is is he making? Um, and if he's going to report from areas around Syria, from you know camps in other countries such as Turkey or Jordan, places where there's a bit more infrastructure in place, then um, that's a bit different. But if he crosses that border into basically an area which is ungovernable or certainly ungoverned at the moment, then, um, you know, um, as Nazi was saying, he's not only putting himself at risk, but he's putting other people at risk. Um, if he gets into a situation where he's taken by one of the, uh, by a group there, then that's going to become a, an issue for, for the government, and they're going to have to decide what to what to do, and they can end up putting other people's lives at risk. Now, that's always going to happen with journalists. Journalists have been taken before, but I think going out there on your own and doing this um, is, is, is foolhardy, and... Any, I think, editor that would look at that down the track and go, this shows, you know, just how great this guy was, I think would be misguided. So we know these days there are far fewer Western journalists venturing into Syria as war correspondents, partly because of how dangerous it is, but also because media organisations can no longer afford to keep them safe. Do you think there's an actual career option for Henry as a war correspondent, Nazia? We have to look at the, the context of the environment that he's heading into. Uh, since the start of the Syrian civil war, there's been more than 120 uh, journalists, both local and foreign, who've actually been killed, either by ISIS or by other rebel groups or who've been caught in the crossfire. Um, it's I, I really can't uh, fathom that notion that you wouldn't sort of start small and perhaps start with, um, do what one of my students did, you know, get herself an internship at Dateline, uh, go to somewhere which uh, has the support of your university journalism program or your host employer if you're, you're doing a work placement. Um, my, my student, she's off to um, Cambodia, she's covering, and, and Thailand. You know, these, these are great places to learn. Um, or, or alternatively, uh, go along on one of the organised, um, you know, trips over to places like Nepal, Engineers Without Borders, Achichis, all of these groups have these um, really structured, supportive programs where you can go and make a difference, tell some really, really good stories, but also have less of a chance of becoming one of those journalists within that area in Syria. Um, and we've got to be honest now, journalists in that area do have targets on their backs. We've also got to... I mean, I... I question the ABC giving publicity to this guy too. Um, you know, people will... He's obviously going to stand up and credit to him for wanting to learn Arabic. Arabic is an incredibly complex language uh, with regional variations, um, etc. He's learning it in a relatively safe place, a safe and stable uh, place where women's rights tend to be respected. Um, and all of that structure is going to fall away as soon as he uh, heads closer and closer to the conflict zone. I guess the ultimate question is, is getting that story ever worth dying for? Well, that is, uh, that's something that he, I think, uh, would have assessed before he, he headed over there. But I guess my concern is his assessment of that seems to have come with incredibly rose-coloured lenses. Um, most economists would say to people, everything that you do, you should assess it. Um, if you're going to assess it from a really utilitarian perspective, you can think with the mind of an economist, you'd say, what is the risk relative to the benefits? Um, the problem is I think he's just looking at this situation as, this is fantastic, I could be the person who does what other journalists have been unable to do, you know, sort of almost implying that all of those other journalists who got killed, they were simply incompetent or, you know, uh, or worse. And so he's sort of assessing the situation uh, in a way that I think to him uh, says that it's worth it and the risk to him is, is you know, patently uh, worth heading over to Oman, learning Arabic, 
which, as I said, isn't an easy language to learn, um, shows that he's actually serious about it. So to him, it's uh, it's worth it to far more experienced uh, war correspondents, foreign correspondents. They've clearly said, uh, no, kiddo, the risk probably isn't worth it. Do you agree, Benedict? Well, I think there was a really interesting point there made about um, him becoming the becoming the story. It's not necessarily the journalist's role to um, to become the story. They're supposed to be the interpreter of the story. Um, you have to let the the story to, to tell itself through you. And he is his first story is all about him. So um, I think in in a way that's not necessarily how you want to start. You, you want to start out as a career anyway. What about you, Josh? Um, I guess the question you asked, you know, is any, is any story worth worth dying for? And I, I'm not sure, you know, some people would argue that some stories are worth dying for, but at the same time, I think, you know, you do the best that you can to, to not die while you're brought in those stories, I guess. So you put in those sort of frameworks and those safeguards and those, you know, uh, I guess sort of fallbacks so that you, that you don't die. And, I, you know, it seems like this guy has kind of gone in and not really you know, had those frameworks, those sort of safetyness behind me, he hasn't got the backing of a major media organisation, doesn't have, you know, a rescue team ready to, to pull him out if something goes wrong. And, you know, I, the, these, if there is a story in the world worth worth dying for, maybe maybe Siri is, is that one. But at the same time, you know, you're a journalist, you're not supposed to be a, a hero or some sort of super superman or whatever. Like, if you're going to go in there, I think you should at least make sure that, you know, you give yourself the best chance of not dying. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marilyn Heptrelees, and I'm speaking to Nazia Barfin, Benedict Brook and Josh Butler. When a passenger jet was reported as hijacked in Cyprus earlier this week, news audiences around the world could be forgiven for thinking we were about to witness the third major terror attack in just one week. Last week's attack on Brussels in Belgium, claimed by Islamic State, left 35 people dead, while a suicide bombing in Lahore in Pakistan, claimed by the Taliban, killed at least twice that number, with many of them children. The news coverage of the attacks in Brussels and Lahore have not been equal. Benedict, you've written about criticism of the world's focus on Paris after the terrorist attack at the expense of Beirut. How has Western media coverage of the recent Lahore attack stacked up compared to Brussels? I did cover this um, uh, at the when the Paris attacks happened, and of course there was the the Beirut attacks at the same time. And I spoke to Randa Catton, who's the um, um, works for the Arab Council, who was saying, you know, it, when you have this, um, what, what's seen as unequal coverage between two um, events that could be very comparable, people feel excluded. Um, and of course, what we saw, you know, the question I asked uh, the Premier Mike Baird at the time was, we're busy lighting up um, the Sydney Opera House with the French tricolour. Why not put the cedar tree from Lebanon on there as well? And it wasn't really a question which he, um, uh, you know, to be fair, directly answered. Um, the answer from a lot of politicians was, uh, "We have contemned both of these, um, both of these events." But clearly, you know, uh, the, the more focus was was on one than the other. And I think we said that to a certain extent with um, with Brussels as well. But uh, you know, I, I, there are kind of reasons behind that. I mean, um, they're not necessarily great reasons. I think in an ideal world, we would uh, do everything equally. But there is um, the 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 people that consume news um that they they are more kind of consumed by what happened in paris than they were what happened in beirut and i think it's something to do with just that that shock factor and i think it you know in a way sadly it's to do with the fact that people expect things to happen in certain parts of the world and they don't expect them to happen, happen in other parts of the world and it's that shock and surprise which um just keeps people glued to their tvs and computer screens 
Josh, do you think that this is a valid reason for media to report on some things rather than others? Um, I think media, there is there is the argument that, you know, media should be covering the stories that people need to know about. But I, there is also the argument that, you know, media now cover the stories that people want to read about. It's not it's not just about, you know, making people eat their vegetables and, you know, read the stories they, you know, should know about to be a, a good, well-rounded person. I think so much of what media is today and uh, especially, you know, I'm part of the online media, I think especially online media, look to what people actually want to read about and for better or for worse or for, you know, whether this is, you know, the politically correct thing to say or not, but as Benedict sort of pointed out, you know, people do expect you know, sadly that these things do happen in, in certain parts of the world and, and that they don't happen so much in other parts of the world. And, you know, sadly, people do seem to think, you know, and, and sort of, I guess, you know, the evidence and numbers do sort of back this up, that these sort of things do happen in certain parts of the world, the Middle East and that sort of thing on a regular basis. And the numbers show that they don't happen in Paris. And, th- and when it does happen in Paris, it is a, it is big news. But I think there comes a fatigue even with things like, yeah. you know, big attacks in Paris. You know, what we've seen with Brussels, I mean, you know, less people um, died in Brussels, but that has had a, a far shorter um, period of time and people have been as, as fascinated by it than, than Paris. Um, so I think the more these attacks happen in places where we previously didn't expect them to happen, it means that people will perhaps pay uh, not as much attention. I mean, I grew up in, in London when the IRA were, were were bombing all parts of the UK and various parts of Ireland, and so were the opposite side. And um, bombs going off in London um, were pretty, you know, happened pretty much every week, and you got pretty bored of them, and they didn't get much media coverage after a while. So uh, I don't think it's just about one part of the world being more worthy in the media's eyes than another. It's about people just becoming used to the same story. Nazia, do you think there's racism in our newsrooms when we see more analysis and media coverage of attacks in Europe compared to places like Lahore? Uh, Look, I just have to reiterate and agree with what Benedict was saying about news that's expected about a certain place. This isn't, this is not uh, overt or explicit racism that we're talking about. We're talking about an industry that tends to reinforce and rely uh, on certain narratives. And that's all it is. It's just the repetition of this narrative um, that rests on, on the notion that there are some cities which are um, expected to have acts like this. So it isn't a, it's not explicit racism. It's not as if, um, you know, a predominantly Anglo-Australian newsroom looks at Brussels and says they're more like us. You know, we're, we're closer to them than we are to these people in, in, uh, in Pakistan. It's, um, it, it doesn't work like that. I think um, it, it's more of a sense of, what's happening in Brussels is completely out of the ordinary. I mean, as as both Benedict and Josh have said, it isn't a good reason for it, but this sort of explains it. But it's really interesting to note that things are changing, and I I saw a marked shift at the time of of Paris, and this is where um, Josh's thoughts about online media are really, really pertinent, because at the time of uh, the Paris tax, people were questioning, well, this happened in Beirut. Why aren't we getting the same sort of coverage? And with the recent um, tragic, tragic events in, in Brussels and in Lahore, uh, Huffington Post was actually one of the organisations who used social media to try and emphasise the, the loss of life um, in Lahore as well. So it's uh, it's slowly changing, probably not changing fast enough for, for those of us who would like to see uh, less of the hierarchy of victimhood, but um, I, I do think that technology is um, is leading the way here. 
You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marilyn Hetrilis, and I'm speaking to Nazia Barfin, Benedict Brook, and Josh Butler. A front-page exclusive by the Daily Telegraph yesterday accused the University of New South Wales of rewriting history in suggesting that Australia was invaded rather than settled. The telly called it the invasion of the history rewriters. In fact, UNSW's diversity toolkit simply makes recommendations for students and teachers to use more inclusive language by saying Captain Cook discovered Australia, not referring to Aboriginal people using racist language, and to use the term Uluru instead of Ayers Rock. Now personalities across commercial radio and TV are accusing the university of rewriting history too. We know that the UNSW diversity guidelines are actually four years old, and in fact they're based on a teaching resource produced 20 years ago that was endorsed by the Howard government. Josh, why would the Daily Telegraph put it on their front page this week? Um, because really it's a perfect cocktail for the Daily Telegraph. It's, um, you know, brainwashing our students and it's Aboriginal affairs and it's education and it's, you know, political correctness gone mad and all those sorts of things. Um, I really like the, the use of how they went, oh, it's a big exclusive from the telly. Like you say, it's four years old. And, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that seems like they've just been digging around and someone's stumbled upon it and they've gone, oh, fantastic. We can do a, a great big Photoshop front cover and we can, you know, get everyone rolled up and we can get the, you know, 2GB talking about it. We can get the morning show panels talking about it. It, it was one of those sh- stories that was always going to make a big splash when it landed, um, even though, you know, it was a bit old. But like I say, it, the reason they probably splash with it is because it's a perfect cocktail for the Telegraph. It's all the things they love getting mad about in one perfect little package. What do you think, Benedict? Well, I mean, I work for News Corporation, who, and Daily Telegraph is published by News Corporation, although I do work for... Um, uh, another part of the um, the company at news.com.au. I mean, I had a look at these guidelines and it, it, it seems to me that they aren't as uh, quite as dict- dictating to students what should be said as would be suggested in this article. Um, and I think a lot of them are very sensible. I mean, I, you know, there is there doesn't seem to be anywhere where they are suggesting you shouldn't use the term Australia was settled uh, but you should use the term Australia was invaded. I can't see a direct uh, reference to that in these this diversity toolkit. More that you should bear these things, these terms in mind um, when you're you're having a discussion about it, which I think is a really um, a fair point to make. But I think the interesting thing about this is. Um, for right or wrong, it's put this. Uh, people have, people are talking about this now, and talking about that period in you know this nation's history, this land's history, and uh, and and really thinking about it. And I, I it's probably one of the first times um, an old watercolor of Captain Cook has made it onto the front page of uh, a major national newspaper. So that's a bit of a first. Um, and Nazia, all of these media commentators are out in force saying we should be we should be free to say Australia was settled rather than invaded. Why do you think they're so jumpy about this issue? Uh, firstly, Marilyn, I really liked the implied uh, quotation marks uh, in your voice when you said exclusive, because <laughs> as you say, this isn't you know this this does seem to be old news. And I, I agree with Josh. You know, it's it's a cocktail of, of probably clickbait. It's a cocktail of um, perhaps being, you know, one of those slow news days and um, they've decided to, to look at something that will get clicks, that will get people uh, reading and, as, as Ben Dick says, having a conversation about it because we know that commercial news organisations are dependent on revenue and they are dependent on people making comments, sharing things on social media and, and clicking on these stories and, and signing up to, to subscribe to these places. Um, look, I used to work at uh, UNSW. I'm very, very proud of my former employer for, uh, for suggesting these things. But as Benedict says, it's, these are simply guidelines, and I don't think that has come across. 
certainly not in the original uh, story in the Daily Telegraph and definitely not in the wave of outrage and I suppose you could call anti-intellectualism that, is, that has come with it. You know, there's been a, a lack of attention paid to uh, whether or not we should be discussing these things. I think it's completely reasonable that um, people should consider whether or not they should use phrases like Indigenous um, people or Indigenous Australians. Um, and it, it serves the function to me of, of like um, acting like a style guide, I guess, for members of the university. Um, and I know that in a newsroom, a style guide is, is probably more closely adhered to uh, than in a university or an academic context. But uh, that's really all it is. It's just asking that people are, compla- are um, you know, are, are discussing this. Uh, the way you'd hear people like Kyle Sanderlands talk about it, you'd think that, uh, you know, a whole bunch of uh, communists have, have come into uh, our, our classrooms and are forcing people to speak a certain way and it's political correctness gone mad. But it's really just a discussion of, of these terms and why uh, we should consider these terms in conversation. I mean, if, I think if the University of New South Wales was genuinely shutting down debate on the colonisation of Australia and was saying you should only think about it in, in this one way, this is the truth of how this happened, which is... The, the 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 implication through the story then that would be that would be wrong you know universities are places of of, of debate and and um, um, these things should should be up for discussion but uh, as I said looking through that toolkit this was um, like you say Nazia more a, um, a style guide I mean they say things here I've got a few here like um, say Aboriginal rather than um, Aborigine I mean that's probably quite a useful and good term to know if, if one's going to cause offence, you know. So um, I think there's some quite sensible things in and, this toolkit. And like you say, you know, the, I think the one good thing that sort of came out of all this was the fact that, you know, we had a lot of Indigenous writers and Indigenous sort of, you know, uh, stars, people with a bit of profile just coming out and saying, you know, I'm worried about this. I have a problem with that particular part of things. I, I'm glad that we have a chance to actually talk about this. So it, it, it's good it's come back in the media and it's given people a chance to, you know, say, this is what I think about it. People that actually are affected by this sort of language, these sort of, you know, prejudices and that sort of thing every day, they get a chance to say, hey, yeah, that actually does annoy me. That actually does bother me. And here's my chance to actually talk about it and write about it and tell people about it. So I think that's, out of all that, I think that was the one good thing that sort of came out of it all, that people had a chance to actually talk about it. And I guess another point is what kind of impact are headlines like this making? What do you think, Nazia? I think the the impact that it's making is the exact um, desired outcome from the people who are writing the headline and who are putting it uh, together. Uh, their uh, their intention, obviously, is to want people to to know about this and to talk about it and to share it among their friends and you know to react to it and to have other media personalities weigh in on the conversation so that it does become something that's spoken about. Uh, that that complete impact is, um, you know, that, that's been achieved. Uh, we're talking about it now. I'm sure other media outlets uh, are going to weigh in on it. Uh, that's on, from the perspective of what's taking place in public discourse. Uh, the impact of that on people who are affected by it, uh, I absolutely can't speak for, you know, how it might make uh, an Indigenous p- uh, person feel to see that. Uh, so, you know, you've got those two different sorts of impacts. Well, that's it from us on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests, Nazia Barfin, Benedict Brook and Josh Butler. Don't forget you can subscribe to Fourth Estate on iTunes and SoundCloud or your podcast player of choice. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and at 2 My name's Marilyn Hetrilees. You can catch us at the same time next week.